Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sport and the complex interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas about their personal experiences, both in business, in life, in sport, and with mental health, and in doing so, seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition that it deserves, so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today, in keeping with the jiu-jitsu theme, is Matt Hutner. Matt is a first-degree black belt under Professor Chet Quint. He's the president of the Vitico Health Group and was the first undergraduate at Yale University to write their thesis in Chinese. In this conversation, we explore some of Matt's professional journey, his experiences with mental health struggles, how he manages the day-to-day, and how jiu-jitsu has bled into other areas of his life. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. Enjoy. Thank you very much, Matt, for for coming in today. Um, The first thing I want to dig into is... Not only were you a student at Yale University, you were also, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the first student to write their thesis in a language other than English, in this case Chinese. What drove you to do that? <laughs> yeah, so thanks thanks for having me on, uh, Ben. First of all, I believe I was the first person to write a thesis in Chinese. I think mm-hmm. other languages, I think okay, particularly yeah. the Romance languages may, may have been done mm. before. Um, for, for me, my journey to being an East Asian studies major and really focusing on Chinese was, was quite a circuitous one. I, I went to Yale as a French major, mm-hmm. um, and I, I loved the French language, and that was all. I studied in France uh, when I was in high school, and, and um, for uh, those of you who uh, who know me, when I try, I try to speak bad French with, uh, with, with anyone I can to That's practice, nice. I still love the language. But when, when I got to college, I realized that, that majoring in that language was really a literature degree. So I already spoke the language well enough, mm-hmm. and then you spend most of your time reading, reading books mm-hmm. you know, and literature and, and writing about them. So I, I switched to physics. And so then I was a physics major um, for for a year or so, and I took a, a lot of math courses, and which I, I, I really, really love. But I didn't really want to do physics lab, and uh, frankly, I wasn't that good at it. Um, there are a lot of there's a lot of smart people at Yale, and a lot of them are <laughs> uh, are, are much better at uh, at physics than I am. So. Um, I had actually picked up the Chinese language as uh, an elective class because I, when, I, when I got there, I just wanted to learn another language. Mm-hmm. Chinese seemed interesting. And so this is, you know, halfway through my sophomore year and, and I'd, I'd stayed with the language, but I didn't have, a, a, now I didn't have a major. And so I eventually then switched to, Yale has two Chinese language focused majors. One yeah. of them is called Chinese language and literature, which is the, a literature d- degree. So you learn all the language and then you, you study, um, you know, Tang Dynasty poetry and novels mm-hmm. and all these kind of things. And then the second is called East Asian studies, same amount of language classes, but then focused on sociology, history, anthropology, um, whatever. Okay, of, so slightly more contemporary content as opposed to the more traditional. Well, it can be contemporary. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily restricted to a time period because it can be ancient history or it okay. can be or, yeah. or, or whatever, but it's more of a liberal arts look okay. at China and the region as opposed to a literature look. So mm-hmm. I, I chose East Asian studies as, as the major. Um, and then, but I always really enjoyed my language classes because I really love the language. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I really don't like history. And, you know, I, so I kind of suffered through these history and these anthropology and these sociology and these sort of, you know, uh, economics classes. I, I didn't really find it fascinating. So when it came time to re- do my senior thesis, which, you know, you have to write this, you know, you know exhaustively researched and 50 page mm-hmm. or, you know, what, whatever it is, paper. 
I really struggled coming up with a topic that I was inspired to write about. So I was like, well, how am I going to get myself interested in this? I was like, well, if I can write it in Chinese, which I like, then I can sort of, you know, suffer through whatever topic it is. And Mm -hmm. and as I I mentioned before we started, I do think because of the difficulty in writing it in Chinese, Mm -hmm. I think I got away with a little bit of a topic that wasn't necessarily as scholarly of a, an endeavor as you typically would would require Mm -hmm. for a Yale degree. So what my topic was is I did a, I analyzed three three textbooks of Chinese history, modern Chinese history. Mm-hmm. One of them was called The Search for Modern China, written by Jonathan Spence, who, who as a class I took at Yale. It was sort of a contemporary and an American perspective on, mm-hmm. on modern China. The second was a Chinese um, uh, government-written history textbook that you, you study in China. And the third was this other Chinese history textbook that was written by a the Shanghai... Um, uh, Freedom Press or some sort of uh-huh. supposedly more liberal, uh, uh, newer Chinese textbook um, that that dealt with the same time period. And then, and this is why I say it wasn't necessarily a big scholarly endeavor, I, I sort of did a book report, right? So I chose, you know, <laughs> four, uh, you know, key events in Chinese history, yep. such as the Cultural Revolution, such as the uh, World War II, the Anti-Japanese War, and all, and all mm-hmm. these kind of things. And I then compared and contrasted the bias that I found in those three different books and the three different perspectives. Oh, okay. So you mentioned that the, the part of the reason that you were kind of struggling to find inspiration was like it wasn't entirely clear where you wanted to take it, but then subsequently the challenge of writing your thesis in, in, in Chinese was a, a big part of the draw towards e- doing exactly it. Exactly right. Your relationship then with things that are obviously difficult to do i mean obviously getting into yale in the first place that's not an easy thing um would you say that your relationship with challenge is something that has been was very useful to you in undertaking that endeavor and then how has that kind of how has it blossomed from there well, it's, it's interesting, and I took an abnormal psychology class mm-hmm. in uh, college as well, and I always remember this, is that it says, uh, people with a high need for achievement mm-hmm. prefer moderately difficult tasks, okay? So what does this mean? So I definitely am someone who ha- does have and always has had a high need for mm-hmm. achievement. So if something is too easy, you get no satisfaction out of it. If something's too hard, you can't do it, and then you feel bad about yourself. But if something is moderately difficult, and then you can sort of struggle and overcome, then you get this really great endorphin boost of, mm-hmm. of feeling like you've done something. Um, so, you know... I think my New York Times crossword puzzle addiction falls into that category, right? You know, it's, you know, at this point, I've been doing crossword puzzles for 15 years. I can do the hardest New York Times crossword puzzles in 15 to 20 minutes. So it's not a overwhelming, you know, but, but it's a moderately difficult challenge, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it really makes me feel good. I think um, Chinese at the beginning was an insurmountable challenge, yeah. and then at some point I got over that initial hump, and then it became something that was moderately difficult for me, which I think is true of a lot of things, right? And they, they you know, people say, oh, Chinese, learning Chinese is so hard. Yeah, it's like anything else. It's super hard at first. At some point, you kind of get into to a groove. It remains, it continues to be hard, but but it also becomes very rewarding. So you start building a sense of momentum, and then even exactly. though it's challenging, you've got enough behind you that you can kind of keep pushing through. Exactly. And in the beginning, it was it was, it was was too difficult for me. So, so it's sort of a funny story. I um. Yale has this policy because they want people who start introductory languages, they want them to take a full year, right? Because they don't want people to just stop after one semester, right? And, and drop out. 
Um, but so I was this French major. I took I also, so my first semester, yeah, I was taking advanced conversational French, which is the highest French language class they had. I was taking multivariable calculus. I was taking um, advanced kinematics, so a two hundred level physics course. And then I chose this 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 you know cool elective class called Introductory Chinese. And I was like, oh, this is yeah, going to be not? great. Why not? <laughs> So I end up, my first semester goes by, I end up spending more time on the Chinese class than I do all the other classes combined. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm spending three, four hours a day just trying to, you know, and I wasn't even very good at it. So I went and met with my academic advisor and my dean, and I said, you know, I'm taking this Chinese class. Um, I think I'm going to drop it after this semester, frankly, because I'm a French major. If I'm not going to be a French major, I'm going to be a physics major. I thought this was going to be a fun elective. It's not. You know, what do you, you know, but if I complete it and then I drop out, I don't get credit anyway. So maybe I should just kind of drop it now. And my advisor is like, no, you should, you should drop it. You should definitely drop it. Don't, you know, don't waste your time. And then I walked out of that meeting being like, I say I can't do things. You don't say I can't do things, you know, and I kind of had this, this, this sort of, you know, uh, maybe a little bit too much pride to actually, uh, uh, give up on something. So eventually I got over that, 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 that hump and it became more enjoyable. Having the uh, the gauntlet throw down, and say no, you should definitely drop it. Exactly, is, uh, you can't do this. It's fine. I don't know if it was reverse psychology or a lack of faith in me. I, I hope I, I like to think it was reverse <laughs> psychology, but I, I feel like it was probably the latter. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> I I can imagine that being um, a challenging experience, but then having your perspective shifted by just a single comment. Yeah, exactly. Um, at the time, um, you wrestled as well. Or was were you wrestling prior to Yale or during Yale? Or so I was a wrestler. Started uh, in middle school, um, so year year seven or year eight, um, and I then wrestled very seriously all throughout high school. Mm-hmm. Now, a few things. First of all, Massachusetts high school wrestling, you know, is like uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example for someone who's a foreigner, but the, 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 the states have different strengths in, in yeah. it, right? And so Massachusetts is not considered a good wrestling okay. state. Okay? <laughs> so I just really want to stress that um, while I was, you know, I, I, in my high school, I, I took six in the state my freshman year, when I, and, and I, I was considered quite good in our in our state mm-hmm. and for our school. I certainly, you know, was not a, a nationally or, or, or you know, in, in the, a more competitive wrestler. Um, and I also largely hated it, right? I mean, wrestling is one of the the most difficult, one of the most grueling, mentally taxing, physically taxing sports. So um, I never planned on wrestling in college. You know, everyone else is chasing girls and drinking beers, and you're cutting weight. You know, it didn't yeah, didn't seem uh, runs kind of yeah didn't yeah. seem like a good idea. But 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 I had my senior year. I was a captain of the team. I had uh, a sore back a lot of the time. I couldn't figure out why. Thought, um, but you know, I was ranked top two in the state, top three in the state. You know, I, I didn't really get it checked out. I then turned out that I had stress fractures. My last match, or what became my last match, I sort of fell on my back, got torqued, and the stress fractures turned into compound fractures, and oh. I ended up laid up for for quite a while. Wow. Um, so no wrestling um, in college. Yeah, no, no wrestling. In college, and actually, yeah. thanks to Title IX, I don't know if mm-hmm. you're familiar with Title IX restrictions. So Title IX was a, was an act of legislation passed in the states that requires. Mm-hmm equal funding for male and female sports in yep. universities. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is that there's some male sports like football, that have, uh, uh, American football, that have a massive amount of funding required for the university where there's no corresponding female sport. As a result, to pay for, to create, correct that imbalance, they've cut a lot of male sports mm-hmm. and Yale actually cut their wrestling team. So Yale doesn't uh, okay. even have a school, a collegiate wrestling team. Okay. 
you you said you started in middle school. Yeah. Would you say that um, you starting you starting wrestling in middle school um, and the fact that again, as you said, it's an incredibly physically taxing, incredibly mentally taxing sport. Would you say that obviously middle school being a very kind of defining time for anyone who's growing up? Would you say that starting wrestling at that time? helped you develop this very positive relationship with challenge or would it be yeah i'd say it's in some ways it's the opposite i I really uh, i had a lot of and still still do struggle with mental health you know uh uh, issues and and wrestling broke me i mean 100 percent. yeah broke me uh when i was in in high school uh and and uh before you know i um first of all so i was very small i went through puberty very very late so so i the reason why i started wrestling was in middle school, I was probably five foot four, five foot three, not a, less than 100 pounds for sure. I mean, I was a, a small guy. My freshman year, I wrestled 103 pounds, 48 kilos, right? So um, I was famous uh, and I got enormous amounts of shit from the wrestling team. I lost two baby teeth on the wrestling bus. Do you know of any idea what this, what this could possibly be like going to a, a varsity t- uh, tournament okay so so i was a really small kid um so so you know i was terrible uh, at a lot of other sports and so wrestling obviously where there's weight classes was was attractive to me although i did end up wrestling a lot of girls because a lot of schools don't have people who are who are that small which is which is fine so um but then my sophomore year came around i had a very old school coach who was a vietnam war veteran and a kind of you know blue real sort of blue collar you know feelings feelings don't exist kind of guy <laughs> and and i had a lot of issues and so my sophomore year i was again ranked highly in the state and i had a sort of mental breakdown i quit i walked off the team um, my maybe like 2 weeks before the sectional tournament or the at the end of the year cuz um among many other things, I was uh, cutting down to 112, 112 pounds. So I guess that's like 55 kilos, maybe mm-hmm. something like that. The weight class above above yeah. 48. Um, and uh, at the beginning of the season, I was about 119 or 118, and I was sort of able to make the weight. But what happened is, as I was, as I then started growing. So I had a growth spurt. I grew two inches. You know, it's a three month, four month long season. And I'm yeah. 16 years old. You know, starting to grow. And so, you know, then I was trying to cut down from 126 to to 125 to 112, mm-hmm. which is you know more than 10 percent of your of your body weight. Yeah. And so, uh, wasn't eating, wasn't wasn't enjoying it, and I just you know really really messed me up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then obviously, I mean, life one struggled hugely with various mental health problems like when I was going through puberty so things like anxiety things like depression all of the above I can't imagine what it must have been like having those things kind of bubbling away in the background but then you're trying to make weight and then you're trying to potentially eat right as well and then you're being bullied potentially because you're a small guy I mean these are not easy things to deal with no, well, absolutely not. And my, and my, I mean, really, and I had a poor relationship with my parents starting yeah. around that time. So, I mean, I remember this this one, you know, seminal incident, you know, where mm-hmm. um, I would, in order to make weight, I was working out three times a day. So, what I would do is I'd wake up and I'd do a workout, I'd go to school, and then I would have wrestling practice, and then I'd come home, do homework, whatever, and then I would work out in, again at, at night in, in the basement, and I would wear plastics, so these, these plastic uh, sweatsuits and, yeah. and, and these kind of things. And so... I started getting towards the end of the season and my parents, you know, were not really involved in my 
athletic endeavors. And not because they were bad parents or disengaged, but um, my father worked, my mom worked, you know, at at home. um, And my father is not an athlete. You know, he's an athlete himself in some ways, but he doesn't watch the game, doesn't watch sports. He's just not, that's not kind of, it wasn't really a thing. So I don't think they paid overwhelming amounts of attention until they saw, saw me getting increasingly sort of withdrawn and emaciated and, and, you know, not, not having yeah. a good time. So I would go down to cut weight and uh, my father's like, you know, you're not, all of a sudden he says, you know, I've researched it on the internet or, you know, you're not allowed to cut weight, you know, you know, whatever is cutting weight is bad for you. You know, I'm like, you know, it's like three months into the season, you know, <laughs> so that, it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the, thanks you know, the, the, the tip there. Yeah. Or whatever. So I was like, whatever, you know, I was like, I, I have a meeting. He's like, no, you're not allowed to co And I was like, you know, I'm, what do you mean? I'm not allowed to co I have a meeting on Saturday. I have to co so he, so he says, you know, if you go down there and cut weight, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. I think he knew I had no idea what else to do. Um, and so I said, well, you're welcome to try. And we sort of ended up sort of tussling with my, with my father, yeah. um, who, uh, I, you know, I don't know if any of us got the better of, of that. Uh, I was still pretty small, um, mm-hmm. but, but, uh, hangry certainly uh and, and uh, not in a good mood um and so you know it's just kind of an example of 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 just what it was what it was doing to my household what it was doing to, yeah, to my mental health you know yeah and is is your mental health something that you managed to get a handle on prior to going to yale or was that something that you struggled with while you were at yale as well yeah continue off and on you know continue to struggle and and and, re, and you know even recently as well i, I don't think anyone ever well I sort of gets says, oh yeah, that box is ticked. I have a handle on my mental health. Yeah, yeah. I never need to to think about it yeah. ever again, right? So, um, in in different times in college, I had gone been on medication, then I went off medication, yeah. and I'd see a therapist and not see a therapist. And I think as I just continued to mature, I think a lot of I start I started feeling a lot better about a lot of mm-hmm. things, and I felt a little bit more in control of my own emotions and, and, and these kind of things, but, but it's, it's still, it's still a struggle. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much getting a handle then more becoming more aware of what your potential cues are for something that could send right. you into a downward spiral. Um, and yeah, just as you say, like becoming more in touch with your emotions. Do you think that, um, being a male for one, because we are not famously in touch with our emotions and having, maybe a slightly difficult relationship with your with your family was that something that made it more difficult for you to kind of reconcile how you were feeling or um I, i'm not a um I, I don't know if i buy into well, i shouldn't say buy into but the, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the gender norm you know i, I don't yeah, know if i'm a typical male yeah. you know i mean for example in my marriage i'm far more you know emotional mm-hmm. and emotionally you know it may be in tune than my wife certainly is right who, who you know sometimes wishes i'd probably just suck it up and get <laughs> on with it right so you know um but but having a difficult relationship with your family, I think never never helps, yeah. right? And and certainly my relationship with my mother, my father to some extent, um, is uh, yeah is, is is a constant constant struggle. Um, mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older, you, you know, I think one thing that has changed is, and, and now I'm a father myself and married, you know, and, and well and truly, you know, no matter how it feels every time you step back in, in at home, you know. I'm well and truly an adult by, by <laughs> you know, any sure. classification, I, I hope anyway, or again, those who know me may disagree. Um, you, you, you start to just feel differently about, about a lot of these, these yeah. relationships. So. Yeah, sure. So you, you graduated from Yale with your, with your Chinese thesis and then you're, you become more aware and more in tune of 
what send you into a downward spiral, what how to more effectively manage how you're feeling and so on and so forth. Did you then come straight to China or was there a period of time when you were in the States? Yeah, so um, I joined and I made this real sort of strategic error with my with my career. So so I had done an internship for this consulting company called A Connect. It was a yep. spin-off of a management consultancy called McKinsey and and they had this sort of innovative independent professional model and the company's still still around and doing well today. And the reason why I joined them was all the other companies that I talked to said well, you know, come to work for us in New York, come to work for us in Boston for a few years. And if you want to move out to Asia, we'll talk about it yeah. later. And I was like, no, I want to move out now. No. So yeah. um, they had an office in, in Boston where I was based, but they also had an office in Hong Kong. So I said, if you join in six months, we'll move you out to Hong Kong. I said, fantastic. So I did. I worked in Boston for six months and true to their word, they moved me out uh, to, to Hong Kong. And the strategic mistake that I made is that I sort of thought you had to be in Hong Kong to do business in China. I thought a lot of the sort of the foreign companies were, yeah. were there. And they were, and that used to be true. But in 2007, sort of Beijing was was well and truly booming. Um, and I realized I, uh, one, didn't want to you know work in financial services in Hong yeah. Kong. Two, I realized I really disliked Hong Kong um, and the lifestyle there and the people and the, the overall culture. Mm-hmm. And three, that I spoke Mandarin better. You know, I would start speaking Mandarin to people in Hong Kong. They'd be like, oh, your Mandarin's really good, you know, much better yeah. than mine. And I was like, oh, this isn't much help. This isn't yeah. much help, guys, thanks. Um, and so so I, I quit um, and, uh, I le- and I moved to Beijing. Nice. And... I'm guessing it was in Beijing that you started training jiu-jitsu? No, so I started training jiu-jitsu in 2004 in, oh, when okay. I was in university. So this is my story of jiu-jitsu is I, I broke my back. I was yeah. laid up for two years. I had to wear this for like the first eight months, this, this body brace for 23 hours a day. and I had to sleep in it and all this, yeah. all this nonsense. Um, and then when I started uh, getting, getting back into mm-hmm. being able to work out a, a lot, um, Yale had this wrestling room and yeah. they actually had a club sort of a wrestling club it wasn't yeah. officially a wrestling team so I would go there and watch wistfully occasionally and I even tried to wrestle and I would kind of hurt myself and I was like oh, no, it's not going to work but after wrestling there are these guys rolling around in pajamas and I was like well you know these guys look <laughs> yeah these guys you know I think I can take these guys for sure you know um, and, and so um, I kind of got into it through that way, and then I trained the local uh, Hoist Gracie affiliate school in New Haven, and so I kind of kind of got into it through there. So, um, but but I, I started, you know, my first stretch. I moved around a lot. Obviously, yeah. my I was in Beijing for five years. So my professor Chet Quint was uh, I met met in Beijing and, mm-hmm. and really trained with him there. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we need to provide a little bit of context here. You are you are a black belt. I am a first degree black first belt. Degree black belt. Yep. Um, so you obviously know what you're talking about when it comes to these things. Um, now we've spoken briefly before about how jujitsu has been like really quite instrumental in terms of. Well, I think I can quote you here. You've said to me before, jujitsu saved my life. Yeah, for sure. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so. I've always been very much inside my head and, you know, some of the ways that I, I monitor my mental health, you get these sort of repetitive negative yeah, thoughts yeah. and your and the mind racing and the trouble sleeping yeah. and all the things that meditation helps so much with. Mm-hmm. Um, if only I remember to meditate. Um, but I, uh, I hear that. <laughs> so, um, but I've really found that, and it's very hard to shut that part, my, shut my brain off like that. But, but jiu-jitsu does it, right? So, you know, when someone is trying to choke you unconscious, it's really hard to think about other things. Yeah. And so um, I would just, you know, 
and, and sometimes it doesn't mean I enjoy every minute of jujitsu. Sometimes I don't want to go to jujitsu. Sometimes I, you know, I, I, or I don't enjoy a training session or sometimes I perform poorly, but that being able to just sort of quiet everything yeah. and get a respite for just a few hours in any day is, is just makes all the difference in the world to me. And no matter what I'm going through in my life and now, you know, fast forward, you know, there's, I've moved, you know, there's kids and, and, and family and there's, uh, you know, I moved my wife who was six months pregnant to Australia at the time, had a baby there with no, you know, family and it works, you know, all, all these kind of things, no matter the level of anxiety and the level of responsibility definitely keeps climbing, Mm -hmm. but I haven't found any situation that a few, that can't be shut off by a few hours in the mat. mat. And, and, and I really think that, you know, save my life. I don't want to be melodramatic. I don't, I haven't been suicidal and, you know, and, and these kind of things, but I literally don't know what I would do without being able to have that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, for me as well, it's, it's much the same thing. Like it's, it's very difficult to, to go onto the map thinking about like you have this bill to pay or what are you going to be doing next year when your contract comes up or what are you right. going to be doing the year after that if you wanted to move on to somewhere else. It's very difficult to keep thinking about those things when you have someone who is actively trying to simulate murder with you. Right. Like, if you have someone's knee on your belly, you're not really worried about what you're going to have for dinner. You're fully present. Exactly. So you moved to you moved to Beijing um, and then you started training straight away under Professor Chekut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, were you still a white belt at this time? Yeah. So, it, you know, I always had this, uh, because I was a wrestler, I, it, it, at the start, wasn't very attracted to the gi, as I think yeah. most wrestlers are not. I was like, hey, you keep grabbing on to me, and this is sort of stupid, and right. So um, I did mainly no gi jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. um, for the first few years, um, uh, off and on. And then when I got to jiu-jitsu, there, Professor Quint is, was very traditional, and it was it was essentially all, all in the gi. And so I was a white belt, but I remember he had a senior student who was a four-stripe blue belt who I tapped out on my first day in the class and, you know, thought I was a total badass. Yeah. And it took me, you know, a few years to realize that I, that I wasn't a badass and to learn how to train properly and actually learn, learn jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And what, what was it that, I mean, let's take a step back there. you you tap out this four-stripe blue belt when you're in your first class and then obviously this makes you feel very good managing your ego then is something that it sounds like was a bit of an issue and it took a while for you to understand that yeah i think you know managing my ego managing i think everyone in who begins jujitsu has an ego journey in in some aspect or another and and i think mine was a little bit exacerbated by the fact that i started in beijing where it wasn't that big of a community Mm -hmm. so kind of go in there and you kind of are I mean I I, I was one of the better people on the mat because there just wasn't that many people Mm -hmm. on the mat Um, but the real sort of um, eye-opening thing for me was actually my professor who I never have come anywhere really close um, beating but you know he was like 100 kilos and he had like six black belts and he was a bouncer and he was Mm -hmm. a cop and he was a ex-military and I mean this, he always used to say, you know, he's like, I love jujitsu, but like, I don't really need jujitsu. You know, and yeah. this guy was just, just sort of, de- Professor Green was just kind of deadly weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I silly, stupidly was, you know, would always think I'd have my day. And so I would roll with him and, and I would try to, to go for my life. And sort of one day he's like, you know, I don't really want to train with you anymore. And I was like, well, why not? And he said, because you're getting better and you're 
15 years younger than me. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't 48 kilos by this point, you know, it was more like 75 <laughs> kilos or 80 kilos. And um, he goes, so in order to, to, and you're trying really hard, you're going hell for leather. So in order to, to train with you, I really need to try hard. And he's, you know, and I need to tape up my fingers and, and we're going to go to war. And he's yeah. like, but I don't learn much by smashing you and you don't learn much by smashing me. And it's just not that enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just kind of not, that interested in doing it. And also, by the way, I'm 45. And so, you know, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, it's like, I can't go to the well every time and, and, you know, and, uh, and roll, roll really hard. So I just kind of would prefer not to. And I felt pretty terrible about that. Um, because obviously by this point, even though I was doing the wrong thing, I really wanted to learn jujitsu and I realized there was a lot of value, um, there. And I realized there are a lot of holes in, in, in my game. And so that was kind of a pivotal moment for me where I really, try to change how I mm-hmm. how I roll so after that pivotal moment like prior to it you're going in you're trying to smash everybody you just want to win after that moment how did your how did your mentality change towards your training I wish I could say it changed in that moment I think it probably took for a how did it start, how did to, start to change yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in that moment I mean if, mm-hmm. if I look at where I am now I mean I get tapped out now as a one stripe black belt 10 times more than I ever did when I was a purple belt, for example, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not because I've gotten worse. It's because I no longer really care who wins a lot of the rules. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's fun to tape up your fingers and, and, you know, and go to war. But I've really tried to work on a lot of different aspects of my game. I've tried to, you know, be, get, let people mount me, let people take my back, try to fight from side control, fight from the bottom. Um, I've tried to work on, so my professor, because he, as I mentioned, he's this big guy and these kind of things, and he was also an ex-wrestler and, and to, you know, his idea of guard, and he was a, a, a fighter, you know, his idea of guard was, he's like, you know, laying on our back, flailing around, he's like, get up, wrestle, you know, mm-hmm. so for a while, I didn't have a really high level guard game, you know, it was either closed guard, or if I wasn't in closed guard, I was pushing the person away, standing back up and, and getting to, back to my base. Um, and so now I've worked a lot more on trying to have a guard, because I, sometimes you get put there, and because I enjoy it. Um, and so, which has also led to me getting my guard passed, you know, uh, a lot, right? And that's okay. So um, I've, I try to work on specific things mm-hmm. and, and different aspects of my game far more than I try to win um, roles. Mm-hmm. So would you say that as, as you've, as you progressed through jujitsu, so as you progressed with belts, um, that your, your mentality at each subsequent belt level has started to bleed over more into other aspects of your life? Um, because one thing that you hear that I've heard quite commonly is that as people progress through their jujitsu journey, other things that may not upon first glance have very much similarities start taking on a bit of a flavor in terms of right this is this is a skill set that i don't have so in jiu-jitsu for me for example it could be working on arm bars from close guard as an example this is a skill set that i have in work that i don't have at the moment so it could be doing a particular job function well or something like that would you say that as you become more more proficient um in your jiu-jitsu that there has been carryover in terms of you being able to apply that student mindset to other areas of your life. I think so, and I, and I wish there was more, frankly, because I really should use more of the lessons that I uh, mm-hmm. from from jujitsu that that I um, 
in my in my uh, in my work. But I actually wrote this article about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu principles being applied to business, mm-hmm. um, which got published in a few places online. And um, some examples from this. So one thing, you know, one of the most fundamental concepts in Jiu-Jitsu is uh, are making frames. Yeah. Okay, because, um, you know, I'm 34 now, you know, one day I'm going to be 44, one day I'm going to be 54, and I'm going to start pretty soon to get, I mean, I get overpowered now by the Kimals and the Giovannis and the, you know, uh, and the, the, the Danes and the Reeds of the world, but, but it'll, it'll only start to happen uh, more often, right? Um, and so me making a mechanical frame where you can apply leverage mm-hmm. without using strength is, is, is very important. So in a business context, sort of the analogy that I made to this is the importance of a system versus people. Mm-hmm. So I consider people are like muscles. Like you may have someone who's really good at their job, but that person could get tired, that person could get injured, that person could leave, that you know something could happen to that person, right? But if you have a system or you have the knowledge institutionalized or if you have the place where someone else could do that job or, or it doesn't rely on that person's individual characteristics or more relies on the organizational characteristics, then you have a frame. Then mm-hmm. your organization can, you know, withstand a lot more, a more force. And so that's kind of what I try to think about at work when I'm building teams or when I'm, when I'm, you know, attacking problems or, you know, is this salesperson, you know, what happens if they leave? You know, mm-hmm. where is this knowledge stored? You know, what if we had to, who would train someone, someone new, you know, these kind of questions. Mm-hmm. So taking the stress off of the individual and then having the mechanical stress being the organization. The exactly. The organization. Exactly. Okay. So you were, you're, you are, or recently were president of Vitico Health Group. Um, health and nutrition company. Was this when you moved your wife to Australia? No. So yeah, um, my my career journey, uh, no matter how I try to uh, <laughs> string it together in a LinkedIn profile, is uh, is, is a little bit uh, disjointed, I must admit. So um, I, I was one of my last positions in Shanghai was running this education uh, travel company, a company called World Stride. So I was, yeah. was uh, which was purchased by a private equity company, the Carlisle Group. Uh, I w- was recruited there and was, was one of the founding executives of the China office. Uh, it's a global company, and I was then promoted. I became the president of their Australian business, and I moved with my family down to Melbourne in uh, 2015. I was there for about two and a half years, and a friend of mine who is with a private equity firm, they had just, with a, a, a Chinese state-owned enterprise, had just purchased this company, Vitico, which was um, based in Sydney uh, and is based in Sydney, and it was an Australian stock exchange listed listed company. So they have this had this very aggressive growth plan for China. They had a board of directors of, of all Chinese people now, essentially, who and had no one in the company who had any business building experience in China. Mm-hmm. So so he gave me a call, and I ended up joining the company. So we then moved from Melbourne to, to Sydney. I spent six months uh, spending three four days a week in Sydney, away from my my, my family while they were in Melbourne, which was not fun. Uh, and traveling way too much, and then uh, moved to Sydney. Was there for a year, and then um, from some other structural changes in the company, uh, became uh, moved back to, to to China to run the office here. Nice. And has was jujitsu always kind of part of that journey? Because there's obviously in Melbourne, there's the the head gym for Absolute. Sure. While you're training now. Um, was it always a part of that journey? Was it something you carried on doing? You made oh, sure that you were able yeah, to do? Absolutely. I mean, you know, once I well and truly got into jiu-jitsu, I mean, so I I, I travel, in 2017, I traveled 350,000 miles. Okay, so I was just on a plane 
absolutely constantly and, um, and, and have been for, for many, many years of my career. And so I always pack a gi. Um, I have trained in Vietnam. I've trained in India and in Hong Kong and Korea and Japan and Australia and in Paris. Anywhere there's jujitsu and, and anywhere I am, there's usually jujitsu. Um, I, I seek it out. You know, I sent on my honeymoon in Hanoi, I sent my wife to the spa and went and trained. Right. Um, I figured she was committed, pot committed at that point. It would have. So, so I, I could start to behave badly. Um, so, so I, when I was in Melbourne, I uh, trained at Absolute in, in the CBD in the, in the center, city mm-hmm. center for a little bit. Um, when I was when I was back and forth there, um, but then I ended up settling with Australia Elite Team, which is another very large um, school and, and network of schools in Australia because it was closer to my work. So I trained uh, there under. Um, a guy named, with uh, Nam Bisso, who's a great competitor and great guy in, in, in Melbourne, if anyone's ever down there. Um, and then when I moved up to Sydney, so it's really weird in Australia, um, all, in my opinion, most of the good jiu-jitsu is in, in, in Melbourne, in, in, in Victoria. Um, New South Wales and Sydney, um, not as, as, as robust of a community. So when I was there, I trained a little bit at a, at a few Gracie Baja gyms. I went around and kind of found, I did some teaching when I was there as well. Um, but it wasn't uh, as I'd say as, as big of a part, um, and that's why. And now moving back to Shanghai has been absolutely wonderful because mm-hmm. joining Absolute and it's been a great, great community. Fantastic, cool. Um, so, the Young Presidents Organization. Um, yes, YPO. The YPO, which they they were the organization that you wrote the article for. Uh, correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it that inspired you to write that article? Yeah, so um, YPO is this global organization founded in the States that is a sort of network and further education platform for CEOs or presidents of uh, under the age of 45, which is the young part, um, uh, who have a company of a certain scale. Uh, and they, you know, I think the, the founding principles of the organization is one of them is lifelong learning, and it's for one to provide uh, people who are at the at the top of their respective industry or something like that f- further opportunities to yeah. to improve themselves. Also, you know, support right. I mean, if you're the CEO of a company, who do you go to if you have problems? Well, you can't go to your board. You can't necessarily yeah. go to your investors. Go, you know, you may not be able to speak to your family because it could you know confidentiality issues. Uh, you, you certainly can't speak to your employees. So, so who do you speak to? And YPO's answer to that is is a a network of other CEOs who may be going through similar um, issues in a in a highly confidential um, environment, and so they have a website and they publish, as you'd imagine, a lot of business related content and a lot of its user generated content. Um, and going back to the uh, uh, enjoying moderately difficult tasks, they said, "Would anyone like to write a uh, a blog post?" And I said, "Well, you know, I, I, maybe I'll, I'll give it a shot." And so uh, I did. So. You said before that when you when you build organizations, you focus on building frames. It sounds to me that YPO provides a little bit of that frame for individuals who are at a certain level in their career, a certain stage. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. I think that's one thing that's really great. So you know, a lot of people um, who who are, are CEOs or are used to or you know quote unquote masters of the universe mm-hmm. much more so than than myself. You know, how do you go about the process of opening up and sharing your concerns yeah. or providing support? And one thing that YPO does very well is they have a lot of frames, a lot of structures that mm-hmm. provide this. So you're placed in a forum, which is a small group of eight to ten uh, people that are you know a, a purposely diverse group. It's not like you try to obviously there can't be conflicts from mm-hmm. a business point of view, yeah. but you also try to get a, a diverse 
range of people who have maybe family businesses, people who are entrepreneurs and have founded their own business, and people like me who are professional managers mm-hmm. who are sort of hired hired guns. Um, and then there's actually a sort of forum protocol and forum exploration process Mm -hmm. and you get trained and and you have sort of protocol to keep to to try to create the best environment for that type of sharing and support Mm -hmm. so some of the without going into all the details some of the things you try to do is we try not to give advice in forums because Mm -hmm. everyone especially ceos everyone likes to give advice and say well here's what you should do but of course none of us really you know i'm never going to be you and i'm never going to truly understand what you're going through so instead what we try to do is we sort of do more self exploration you say you're having a problem i say well let me tell you about an analogous situation i faced mm-hmm. and here's what i did and here are the choices i made and then hopefully you can glean, glean some, some understanding of that as opposed to me being like your problem is so simple why don't you just yeah. xyz so it's like a case of is that well you come to me you have a problem well i solved it this way so do exactly what i did and because as you say, I'm not you, you're not me. Correct. Then something is just not going to work. Correct. Is there sort of a mentor-mentee relationship involved in there as well? Like, are there individuals who are perhaps older and have more experience who semi fall into roles of like a mentor with maybe younger younger individuals in the forum? Or C- certainly for me, you know, I mean, so I'm as I joined the organization when I was in in Melbourne three three, three years ago now, and so you know, I think the average age I was probably the youngest person mm-hmm. you know there, and the average age I think was you know forty or thirty eight globally or something like that, and and it's it's a lot older in, in, in China. Um, and so, you know, I look up to these people mm-hmm. and, and I get a lot of great support. You know, some of it's on, on technical things. I remember I was going through a contract negotiation um, when I got to Australia and they're like, well, why don't you run it back to your lawyers? You run it by your lawyers and get back to us. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. And I was like, shit, I don't have any lawyers. You know what I mean? Like, who has lawyers? You know, and I, was like, I had no idea. You know, so I called, you know, my, my buddy in, in, in YPO. I was like, mate, can you, can, you, can you help me sort this? You know, and he was, you know, he had a law firm and he, and he you know, hooked me up and, and the guys brought a lot of great support. So, you know, sometimes it's like that. And, and other times it's just, yeah, I mean, people who have, whether they're the same age or different or, 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 or a lot older, they, they, they've been through so many things that, yeah. you're, that you're going through. So yeah. it's, a, it's always a valuable perspective. I mean, obviously, everyone's story is different, but there are common themes that, exactly. that run through everyone's experience. Exactly. So having, having that support structure um, from a jiu-jitsu standpoint, providing you with the, the psychological space to kind of get out of your own head and relax a little bit in combination with organizations like YPO, are they things that you kind of seek to emulate when you build teams as well you seek to kind of build structures build frames that have the support structures in place for people if they're struggling as well how does how is it kind of built in how is it played into how you build teams yeah so um i haven't a lot of the teams and the organizations that i've run are frankly haven't been large enough that would really i think benefit from that type of formal structure mm-hmm. but when I look at my management style and my management philosophy, and here I have to give a lot of credit to my father. My father, among other things, is a, a professor, was a professor of organizational behavior at, at Northeastern University, mm-hmm. and he actually uh, wrote a book, which I helped him edit, called uh, The Universal Management Principle, and, uh, I mean, so, you know, which is on Amazon and, and, and is, is, is kind of, it's a quick workbook, it's kind of cool. Um, and, and what he says is the universal management principle is people don't care what you know until they know that you care. 
Okay. Okay. People don't care what you know until they know that, that you care. And so this is, I think, is a very good summation of how I try to ma- behave as, as a manager. So if you ever talk to any of my employees or when I do talk to my employees, I'm saying, okay, we're going to talk about business. But my first question, my first priority is, is how, well, how are you doing? Because mm-hmm. if, if they're not happy, if they're not enjoying, if they're not fulfilled, then what, they're not going to be good at whatever task they're going to be doing, right? And I think one of the biggest dangers in, in, in business is a disengaged em- employee. Yeah. Good employees are good. Bad employees hopefully either leave or you fire. But disengaged people tend to just remain there and just underperform mm-hmm. forever, you know, or, 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 and, and that can be really damaging to, to an organization. So um, I, I try to make sure I try to have a very flat organization. I try to make sure people know that I care about them as individuals and as, as professionals um, and and I spend also a lot of time communicating or I try to. I, this is something I could be better at the why as much as, as the what, right? I mean, yep. so the what is, you know, here's the task that we need to do. do but what, what I found is that people don't, at lower levels of the organization, are not as understanding of the strategy as you, you'd think or hope they would mm-hmm. be. It's like, well, I gave that presentation. I sent you that deck. We did a call, you know what I mean? But there's still, you need to constantly reinforce why it is we're doing what we're doing. Um, and so, uh, I would love to be in a larger organization and have the opportunity to put in place some of the things, you know, maybe some formal mentor-mentee relationships or, 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 more, or more, more of that kind of thing. Have you read Start With Why by Simon Sinek? I've seen the TED Talk. I haven't read the, uh, read the book. I think that, that digs into a lot of what you were just saying there in terms of having it a clearly defined organizational purpose. Once you have a clearly defined purpose, then you can figure out how you're going to do it. And then once you have the how, it's easy to figure out the what as opposed to, well, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. But the purpose is kind of a little bit fuzzy. Exactly. So you've been in China now for 11 years. Yeah, with a brief, uh, there was a, a time br- for two years. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, brief- two, three years was off and on. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that it's like mental health, as you say, like it's something that isn't, you can, I've ticked that box, I'm now fine. It's yeah. not something that you have to, to deal with again. How do you go about managing it in a culture that is not your own in a society that is as it seems at the moment not yet fully on board with it being an issue that needs to be addressed yeah it's a great i mean it's a great question and i would argue that it's it's not fully you know people in the united states are not as on on board with it and being addressed you know as they should be but it's particularly difficult in in china um First of all, I have to mention, you know, my wife is just the most amazing creature in the world and Mm -hmm. the biggest source of of support to me. She has gone through so much herself and is so uh, kind and understanding and helpful as a sounding board. She's obviously not a therapist, but has really shaped my perspective and and understanding in, in, in how I live my life. And so, um, that that is a huge and constant source of support for me, and this is, uh, as, as you know, when I, I was going through a difficult time last mm-hmm. year, and you know, but my wife came up with this motto, which I now have have tattooed on me, which is you know, stay alive, stay together, mm-hmm. you know, and this is sort of kind of what I try to boil everything onto. I mean, mm-hmm. one, stay alive is self self explanatory, but I also expand this to mean take care of yourself, mm-hmm. be you know, be healthy, and, and these kind of things, and then stay together. I just as long as I can stay together with my wife, with my family, mm-hmm. and, and with loved ones, I think 
a lot of the other things that are vexing me end up being being details um, in a way. Um, but in terms of, of, of formal support mechanisms, you know, China's tough, right? I mean, so not many, um, there's not a big mental health community here in terms of psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, even at uh, the uh, Shanghai United Family or these kind of things, you know, there's not a lot of them uh, uh, on there. Um, international health insurance, as again, I would argue health insurance in the United States is, is not always great about covering mm-hmm. um, mental health things. And, and, and in China, as we talked about briefly, international hospitals are enormously expensive. And so if you if they don't cover it, you better you better be prepared for thousands of, of RMB yeah. to, to, to fill these prescriptions and, and, and these kind of things. Um, so, you know, whereas Australia is a is a great example of a country that has amazing mental health resources. There's mm-hmm. a um, company called uh beyond blue which provides a free hotline that you can that you can call and you speak with it with a mental health counselor and then for the resources and suggestions and you know w- wonderful and they also have special hotlines for people suffering from postpartum depression and for new mothers and yeah. for you know i mean just they seem to have um the infrastructure is in place. Uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit a little bit better um uh so so it's, it's difficult. And, and I personally look, you know, getting to know my wife being Chinese and, and her friends and family, I, I think it I think it's highly unlikely that it's not an issue among the Chinese, yeah. uh, you know, that, that just somehow, you know, I, I would imagine a lot of people are dealing with with undiagnosed and unsupported um, depression, anxiety and other other mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. So how long have you been together with your wife? Now? I have been with her we've been married for nine years 2000 no eight eight years uh 2011 mm-hmm. and then we were together since 2008 so we've been together 11 years married for nine so you i mean did you meet her in beijing i met her in beijing yeah, yeah. so when i came to beijing sat next to her at work we were co-workers um and uh on the my first day uh of working i um uh, I had to find the subway. I never forget. So, so I didn't know what the subway was. So she goes, "I'll walk you," and she she's walking across, and then she goes to cross the street with with me, and she and she goes, "Hold my hand," and hold my hand across the street. And I remember thinking, "This is either the most caring woman I've ever met, or she thinks I'm a total idiot, or both." I mean, you know, I you know, I mean, you know, why would you hold? Well, yeah, yeah, you know, like I never yeah. crossed the, like I never crossed the street before, you yeah. know. But so we we ended up sitting next to each other and. Uh, and the, rest to know the rest is history, as they say. So, would you say that like she's been integral in terms of you being able to navigate living in China, because having studied um, Chinese culture and history at Yale versus living it? Oh yeah. Like in terms of bridging that gap between expectations, which you have all of these like academic wrapped expectations, versus the very real reality that being here can be. Oh, well, it's like anything in school. Yeah. I mean, school yeah. doesn't prepare you, unfortunately, for, yeah. for real life, you know, and I came here with, I mean, even my Chinese language skills are hilarious. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I was fully capable of discussing, you know, the economic reform of Deng Xiaoping and yeah. had no idea how to pay my electric bill. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, in, in terms of, you know, <laughs> very specific sets of vocabulary uh, right. does not help. <laughs> exactly. So, so my, my wife is just, as I mentioned, such an integral part of not saying living in China, I think cheapens it because yeah. it's as if it's because a, she's Chinese yeah, yeah, that she has, some, you yeah. know, this is like, um, she's not a translator. She is, she's a life partner yeah. and she is an integral part of just every aspect yeah, of, of, of my life. Of course. I mean, I, I, 
in, that was obviously an assumption that I made. I don't seek to put her in a box. So. Yeah, right. No. Um, okay, so you've now you're now moving back into more of an education focused role. Yeah, seeking to. Yeah. So now, as I've uh, as I recently wrapped up this this president role for Vitico, and um, the same investors that invest in Vitico actually own my previous company that I introduced to them called World Strides. Yeah. And so now, for the next six months, I'm helping out with some China strategy and business development for for this education travel platform, um, and I have a few other projects and, and opportunities uh, cooking, but but I, I'd be lying if I said I had a uh, a clear clear path forward. Well, these things tend to kind of fall into place a little bit, don't they? I mean, so they say at least. I hope, yeah. So, yeah <laughs> right, exactly. It's easy to look back and think, oh, no, that's why. <laughs> or I know I'll need a cash to crash on <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Okay, so I think before we wrap things up, there's one thing that I like to kind of ask, I say everyone, the two people that I've had on this side. Right, right, everyone, yes. <laughs> um, it's that if if someone is listening to this and they're like they're having a particularly tough time at the moment they're they're struggling if there was one thing that they could do that was help them take at least like a positive step forward what would you say that should be well other than starting jujitsu which I recommend to, to anyone and everyone hundred um, percent agreed that yeah um, look you know this is something that my, I learned from my wife is is it just be kind to yourself and kind to others. And that is the hardest thing to do. I don't know about 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 you, but I, I am the hardest on on myself and uh, and on others. You, you know, I mean, you can get very much in in your own head and, and lash out and these kind of things. And just if you take a step back and just be kind um, to 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 people, including yourself, I find that is a very a very helpful step. Another thing I, I learned from my wife because I tend to be very up and down. You know, when I'm feeling mm-hmm. good, I can feel like I can walk through brick walls. You know, and uh, when yeah. I'm when I'm feeling bad, you know, it feels like th- those walls are toppling on me. Um, you know, things are never as good as you think, and they're never as bad as you think. You know, and so th- the truth is is always somewhere in the middle. So th- those are I have many fortune cookie phrases that mm-hmm. I uh, repeat to to get myself through the day. But but those are two, those are two. Perfect. Well, I think we will wrap things up there. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. For doing this. It's, I mean, obviously, this isn't something that is always particularly easy to share or to talk about. Um, so thank you very much for sharing and talking about it. My pleasure. You know, I, I see mental health as, you know, if you had a broken arm, you know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be like embarrassed to discuss it, you know, or, or something like that. But so I, I think, you know, a lot of these things are, um, are, are injuries or, or issues that we all face like anything else. Nothing to... To, to be ashamed of. Perfect. Perfect place to stop. Thank you. Thank you. That was episode three of Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel there is something that I should be talking about, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way for you to do that is to leave a review on either iTunes or whatever podcasting app you're listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.